Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to a very special live episode of Palace Confidential to coincide with the launch of Battle of Brothers, the story of the rise and dramatic fall of the bond between Princes William and Harry. It's been serialised in the Daily Mail over the past few days with some really jaw-dropping headlines. It was written by the historian Robert Lacey, who I am delighted to say is here today. Welcome, Robert, alongside the Mail's editor-at-large, Richard Kay, himself a veteran royal writer, and the paper's royal editor, Rebecca English, who's joining us via Skype. We'll also be asking them some questions sent in from viewers, so stick around for that. But let's start, Robert, with the central theme of this book, the fallout between William and Harry. Some have over the years suggested that this is a total media confection, but your Mm. book very strongly argues otherwise. Yes, when I started um, looking into the subject, before I decided to write a book, I thought, is this all made up? By the media, you know, the palace was saying, "Oh, well, there may be a bit of disagreement, but it will blow over." Um, and of course, that's their job—to minimise disagreement, uh, to keep us all feeling happy about the royal family, and quite rightly so. But as I looked into it more and more, I'm afraid um, that I started to discover what people like Richard um, were already knowing, and which has sadly come to pass—that there is a, a profound rift between the brothers. Um, Well, we can see it geographically. Uh, The book explores um, the roots of that. Um, I'm trying not, I don't want to apportion blame. I I think it's a very functional problem, but Mm. we've got these two wonderful, charismatic, um, attractive young men that we thought of as the future of the monarchy with all their past that Richard knows about, the tragedies, um, um, of, of their upbringing, and they seem to be the way ahead. Um, but of course, they are also, um, and they've said this themselves, so I think we're entitled to say, psychologically damaged by their upbringing, w- which I explore in the book. Um, and they seem to have drawn two different lessons from what's happened to them mm. the breakup of the parents' marriage, the death of Diana. William has gone for duty. For William, and you know, the people in reading the Bay will have seen a lot about this in the last few days, William has felt the idea that he's going to be a future king. As a little boy, it was a matter of ego. I'm going to be the king. And, but it very rapidly, very rapidly, by the time he's seven or eight, that's moved into a more serious mode. And it became a matter of strength and consolation for him. Let me let me interrupt you there just to ask: How did you come? How did you go about finding this detail, the the truth of the detail? My background way back is an investigative journalist. I published a book in 1977 for the Silver Jubilee called Majesty, which was an attempt, an early attempt at taking the royal family institution very seriously. Um, and so, um, I built up over the years contacts and. I turned to them, and um, uh, and you know the, 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 
the story was there, plain mm. to see. It couldn't be avoided. I'm fascinated that in an interview last week, you said you see this brotherly rift, this fallout, as a dramatic and as an event as the abdication. Yes, I Wh do. Why? I mean, I do, because as I was saying, William has taken from the travails of his life the inspiration of duty. He's done it marvellously. So that even when he courts Kate, he keeps the girl waiting nine, ten years to make sure she's happy to be queen. Um, and um, what a good couple they are, representing the future of the monarchy. Harry took exactly the opposite lesson. He saw himself as the victim, he saw both of them, as victim of a loveless, arranged marriage. Um, reflecting some of the bad sides of the royal system. And he resolved that when he married, it would be for love. And that's the conflict we've got between love on the one hand, duty on the other, and that was the conflict in 1936. And in 1936, it was one man, Edward VIII, who had to decide, do I opt for duty? Do I go for love? With an American divorcee. And in our own day, it's, this conflict is polarized between two individuals. Harry, impetuous and going for love. William, equally impetuous and insisting on duty. Is this your characterization of the brothers? You, you know them, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I, I knew them quite well when they were growing up and they were clearly uh, different um, as, as young men and, and as they um, became adults too. I mean, I think the key thing for me has always been this sort of whisper closeness of the two of them. I mean, they really did look out for one another. I'm sure mm. Robert would agree. Um, uh, William wanted to protect Harry and Harry looked up to William for that protection. There was this idea of us against th the rest, if you like, certainly after the death of, of their mother. I think that brought them ever closer. Um, and it has been a, a, a sense of sort of profound sadness to see what's happened to them in, in recent years. I mean, there was a time when, as Robert says, you know, the hopes of, of the nation, the Commonwealth, the world even, were, were on the shoulders of these young men mm. going forward. The monarchy never looked stronger. Now, one has to say there are questions about what will happen in the future. We're asking, going to ask an awful lot of Prince William and without Harry at his side. I mean, mm. William would have hoped that Harry, who was the one person, perhaps, to understand uh, the issues and, and the responsibilities, and he would have wanted him there, and it looks like he's not going to be there. I'm absolutely fascinated that, I mean, I think in more recent times, the media, and I think the public has really liked to characterise this falling out as to do with, you know, like almost like the Yoko figure of, mm. of Meghan arriving and splitting up the brothers. But your book um, seems to suggest that the seeds of discontent go way back further. Yes. Let, let's look at that, where the latest extract today, where we talk about the earliest life with their nanny, Barbara mm. Barnes, and their distant parents. Why, why did you go back that far to explore well, this? Well, this does go right back to the beginning. Um, uh, I mean, when they were born, the accounts of the little children are that actually William was the naughty one, pushing everybody around, um, uh, and Harry was the quiet one who sucked his thumb. This was before even Richard came on the scene. And then, <laughs> apparently, William got to understand this destiny that he had, and we actually see a character change in these children. He becomes the thoughtful, cautious one, 
And it's Harry who, at the age of four, is arguing in the back of a car with Ken Wharf in front there, um, and Diana, their protection officer. And the nanny is trying to um, discipline the boys. And Harry says, doesn't matter what I do, I'm not going to be king. <laughs> and so at the age of four, this pattern is set of um, good boy and delinquent. And so it's not just about personalities, it's about a system, the royal system. Um, and, you know, the, the British royal system never coats well with the spare. Poor Princess Margaret, poor Prince Andrew, I would say, too. Um, um, and once again, um, and we'll be getting onto this more later, I know in detail, Harry has suffered the same fate. Mm. It, did it seem functional to you when you were writing about them as boys? Well, it did. I mean, they seemed utterly natural. Um, I think one of the great strengths of, of Charles and Diana's upbringing of, the, of both boys was they, were, they had a unity of purpose. They both agreed on the boys' schooling and how they were going to be educated. There were going to be no governesses and that kind of old-fashioned system. And, and I think it did give the chance for the boys to spread their wings a little uh, as young men and, 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 and become much like the, the children they went to school with. They, they, uh, yeah, they, they seemed well-adjusted young men mm. as they grew up. Mm. But I, I would just add in there that um, it's very interesting that from everything Prince William has said, he does, not, he does not want Prince George to know too early that he's going to be a king because William clearly remembers the burden of that at an early age and the complications of it. And we mm. know from the record that he's wanted to spare George that particular worry. Well, so, uh, may I just yes. interject there? Yes. I would say that um, Diana in particular wanted to do the same for Prince William growing mm. up. And there was, for, throughout the, the time she was there, um, she ensured that the spotlight was, was shared between both brothers. So. Mm. William was often being asked by the palace for photo calls and she would always insist that Harry was involved too. Well, it's um, interesting raising the subject of Diana because obviously now beloved people's princess, the queen of hearts, but I think there'll be a lot of raised eyebrows about some of the revelations in your book, Robert, about what kind of a mother she was, sort of, you know. Well, the one you just raised, um, and which I didn't answer properly, I know, go back to, you ask about the first, well, one of the first nannies, Barbara Barnes. This was a, a marvellous nanny, not an old-fashioned governess, who had worked for Anne Glenn Connor, who was a close friend, lady-in-waiting, lady wasn't she, to Princess Margaret, wife of the notorious Lord Glen Connor, who owned the island of Mustique. Yeah. She had, Barbara Barnes had been a wonderful nanny to um, the Glen Connor children, and so when they were looking around, she got recruited, and for four years, she was in some ways a surrogate mother to the boys. I mean, there were actually holidays that she took them on to Scotland, for example, for a week, when she was mum, there were no children around. They got incredibly close. And then, um, uh, um, d d yeah, Barbara Barnes was invited to Mustique by the Glen Connors, and by accident, because there were paparazzi there, she got photographed with Raquel Welsh and all these other celebrities. And Diana came to feel that this wasn't what a nanny should be doing. And so when Barbara Barnes came back from Mustique, she was sent to Coventry by Diana and in fairly short order dispatched. Mm. And I was told, um, you know, her bags were packed for her. Um, 
she was told that her services were no longer required, and she shouldn't even write a letter of farewell to the boys. And, and the point I made in the paper the other day about this was that this is actually a strange pre-echo of what happened later. After four or five years, someone they're incredibly close to as a parental figure just vanishes. Mm. So sadly, they got some practice at what was to come. Um, I think we can get Rebecca is joining us now if you're there Rebecca it is hello Rebecca it's it's sometimes hello. a cliche that your mum and dad mess you up but the, a lot of the revelations in this book would suggest that that's exactly what's happened with William and Harry yeah I mean I think as the gentlemen say they are a product of their upbringing and that upbringing wasn't the easiest but it's it's how they've handled it and and Harry has always railed about the system whereas William did go through a kind of flirtation with uh, railing against it but has come to the conclusion that it's better to be within the family within the royal family within the monarchy and try and kind of carve a new path for him Harry didn't feel he was able to do that at all it's fascinating, isn't it, to think that particularly with the tragic death of Diana, we as a public thought that that would be an unbreakable bond, the thing that brought them together mm -hmm. forever. So it's kind of shocking for the public to accept the, the situation we're in now, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, and obviously we thought, and Rebecca will remember it too, that um, uh, that unity uh, between William and Harry would be something that would, would never, never be lost. Um, and it really is only in the last two or three years that the, that the bonds have been stretched. I mean, as they I have. mean, it's welded into our memory, isn't it, that the boys walking behind their mother's yeah. coffin. And, you know, or, or, or you know about all the stresses and strains that went into that. But mm. that's what their image is in our minds. And so the, the rift between them, the fact there's an ocean and a continent between them now, not to mention arguments over other things, you know, is... Um, it's difficult for everyone to take, I think. Let's move forward a few years to, you know, the real sort of the adolescent years, the, the motherless years, when it still looked like things were very tight between them with, all, mm. with the notorious Club H days of Highgrove. Mm. What are your remembrances of, of the, that, that era, both of you? Um, well, I mean, all I, what I can remember is that... Um, Were you ever invited to Club H? I was never invited to Club <laughs> H. Let's uh, explain to yeah. you, Club yes. H, those of you who have not read this morning's Daily Mail, which explains it very well, based one, actually... One or two people. Wait, based yeah. on the research of Richard here, I have to say, Club oh, H pardon. was a basement at Highgrove, hence H. Um, it was a sort of bomb shelter protection area, and... Somebody, I think Prince Charles perhaps, had the idea, let's make this a rumpus room for the boys. It turned into a sort of discotheque nightclub. Um, they had a disco down there, but they also had a bar. Um, uh, lots of scruffy sofas around the wall. And as actually Charles became more and more drawn away on public duties, um, and there was no mother there, and no nanny by then either, it became their base. And... Um, uh, of quite a wild set, as uh, we had a little discussion last night about on how we should describe this in the paper. You know, was it a fast set? Was it a wild set? But anyway, they had a great time down there. But out of this came um, two big episodes. One, when Harry was caught smoking drugs and admitted to it. It was publicised at the time, Harry's drug shame. But as explained in the paper this morning, the PR people around Prince Charles seized on this as an opportunity to make Prince Charles look like a sympathetic father mm. because their goal in those years was to sell 
Camilla and Charles as a couple to the country. And the chance to pretend that Charles hadn't actually neglected the boys, but had actually taken Harry to a drug rehab centre, which he hadn't, and, hadn't, and it hadn't happened at the time, um, that's when Harry begins to question the system. Mm. Um, William escaped without any discredit, and I'm not, no one's suggesting he was involved in, in taking drugs, but he was two years older than his brother. He was in charge of these parties. So when, just a bit later, Harry gets caught at a party wearing a Nazi swastika on his arm, um, once again, Harry gets all the blame. And the papers never mention the fact that, well, Harry and William chose this costume together. And they went to the party together, laughing about Harry dressed as a Nazi. But as the press reported it, and as we, the public, wanted to know, there's one king of the castle, that's William, and Harry came to be cast in the role of the dirty rascal. Dear old Harry, that's what we like, the court jester. What, what do you remember of reporting those incidences? Well, I mean, there, well, there are two separate episodes there. Um, the Nazi uniform one, I do remember, there were a lot of questions about the absence of, of the Prince of Wales. He was very absorbed in his life with the then Mrs Parker Bowles, now his wife, of course. Um, and Harry was, if not exactly feral, but sort of running loose. Mm. Um, William was not a, a constant figure in his life by then. Um, they did go to that party together. It was a terribly bad choice, but the idea that I think that William was responsible for what his younger brother should wear. I think I think, no, that's pushing too far. It, no, no. I think that might be pushing it a no. bit. Um, as for the uh, the whole episode over Club H and the the lock-ins in local pubs in Gloucestershire, yeah, that was a, that was a major problem for the Prince of Wales, and he at that time had a, a very strong image in the press as trying to do his best as a single parent to raise these sons in whom the entire nation took such a great interest. Mm. Um, and I think the way they sort of handled the fallout from it all was, was, was quite clever. Um, I mean, the, I think Harry did recognise his responsibilities. Um, it took a little while. It took the army, really, to sort of drill into him um, those responsibilities. But nevertheless, they were big shocks to his system. Mm. Rebecca, do you think it's fair to look to William to have taken more responsibility at that time in Harry's, well, you know, loosely, loosely labelled feral years. I can see why you'd say as an elder brother he should be leading by example, but you can imagine William lost his mother too. So he's feeling his way in this very, very difficult and awkward situation. I mean, I moving slightly forward, I mean, I interviewed both of them when they were both living together, when they were training as air pilots, and they were still really close then. There was an amazing bond between them. There was lots of joking about who hadn't done the washing up, smelly socks over the place, William moaning about Harry always on the PlayStation. You know, there was still a really, really good bond between them um, even then. So, I, I don't know, I, th I think it's a bit harsh to, to lay that kind of blame at William's feet. No, um, I, I, what I'm talking about is the stereotyping of actually that we are responsible for. I, uh, I try and avoid in the book apportioning blame. You just go round in circles. I think we should face up to the fact that um, we stereotype these people. I mean, I know they're on taxpayers' money and that sort of thing, but um, um, we... Um, uh, 
we expect so much of them. And, um, and, that, and that there's the air and the spare is, is almost naturally cast as the rogue, yes, as, as, as the naughty one. As, as yeah. the naughty rogue. And, um, you know, it was quite clear that, you know, Harry's destiny in the royal family, going back to what I was talking about as Princess Margaret Andrew, you know, Harry was supposed to marry a, a nice girl called Henrietta or Annabelle, no, no, no disrespect to those bearers of those names, and go and live in the country um, and, and be a good, dutiful backup. And for whatever reason, he meets this dynamic, controversial, self-made celebrity. Let's not forget, Meghan was famous in her way as a TV star, as a black woman of conscience speaking up for difficult issues before she met Harry. Um, she was also a millionaireess in her own right. Difficult, uh, I'm sorry, uh, difficult is not a word one should use, but a challenging person to bring into the royal family. So I would say that when William said to Harry, hang on a minute old chap, is someone of this star quality going to fit in? How is she going to fit in? She's got these ideas. I mean, we don't, uh, sorry, we mustn't, we don't well, know what was actually said in this conversation. I would simply make the point that William had a point in saying we should consider this and asking his uncle Charles Spencer to step in as well as was revealed the other day in the paper. And so right there at the beginning, the seeds of the rift well, are being yeah, cast. I'd like to go back to the beginning of that, that courtship and when, you know, the, the public mm. was very excited for Harry and Meghan's wedding and their relationship. And at that time, they were dubbed the Fab Four. They were doing great press trips together. And, and you know, it, everything seemed rosy. I had mm. no idea that there were any tensions behind the scene. But, mm. Rebecca, did, did you notice any tensions on any of those engagements? You've been out with them many times. I wouldn't say tension, but obviously as couples, they were getting to know each other, getting to know how they worked, you know, their personalities, how they bounced off each other. And obviously they they didn't actually meet that much in, in private. So all of that was being played out in the front of the media and the public, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So they didn't, I suppose what I'm saying is they didn't have time to kind of, you know, rub along, you know, and work out what makes each person tick that much in private it was a very very public thing to go through and it seems like what you're saying Robert that this was a very pivotal moment when William sort of said oh is this a bit fast yes what what, what are the details of I mean it's, it's quite an explosive revelation that Charles Spencer was yes. also involved in that yes well that that, that that's been confirmed um, uh, so the fact that um, William cares so much that he, Charles, of course, was, uh, Charles Spencer was um, the brother of Diana. And over the years, with this, you know, ambivalence about Prince Charles's parenting, he became a sort of foster father to the boys. So it shows the importance that William was attaching to, you know, William could, I think, see the problems ahead. And I think he was justified in putting them to his brother. As I said earlier, as we know, he himself put his own wife through a sort of apprenticeship. And what was it, two or three times, Kate walked away and said, I'm not coming to Sandringham if I'm not properly, you know, in the, in the picture. Mm -hmm. But she stuck it out, and the result has been this perfect couple 
that we look up to for the future. We're not very sure about the reign of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. I mean, it's going to come, I suppose, but it's not what we really want to contemplate in the future. We want to see... <laughs> well, we will get on to that. We want to see the yeah. wonderful Prince William we saw on the television last night with those enchanting children um, and Kate. Marvellous couple um, for the future. But um, how does Harry fit into that? that? That's the question. Well, I mean, how, you know, how do we think he, do we have any details on how he genuinely reacted to being advised to put the brakes on this courtship? Um, well, I'll come in first. Um, no, we don't. All we know is that he exploded. I mean, the other book, Finding Freedom, suggests that William made some derogatory comments. I can't back that up in any way. All I know is there was a double family confrontation between the brothers, then involving Charles Spencer. I think it's remarkable, and as I was saying earlier, to the credit of the boys, that actually there's no credible details of what they've ever said to each other in anger privately. They've stuck together. And that's my hope for the future. And well, it certainly looked very chummy on the day of Harry and Meghan's wedding, didn't it? They managed yeah. to pull it together for that. Well, I think, well... Yeah, of course, and, uh, yeah. and they absolutely did. And we must remember that this episode, when, when William speaks or uh, spoke to his brother and said, are you sure about this? Which I think was just sort of fraternal advice, really, and no more than that, happened before the engagement and uh, yes. long before yeah. the wedding. And, mm -hmm. and they did then appear subsequently as, as a quartet on many occasions. And, and whatever troubles there were, were clearly, not, you know, they didn't trouble the surface um, appreciation. But yeah, of course, on that day, that wonderful day at Windsor Castle, um, Harry beaming with pride, and, and William looked very proud to be supporting his brother. I'm and sure Rebecca, he was. Rebecca will have what a clear view of that. I'm sure that William was genuinely happy and supportive of that match, wasn't he, at that time? Well, he, de he definitely wanted Harry to find happiness in the way that he had done. So, so yes, I mean, that said, I, I agree with some of what you've been saying in your, in your book, Robert, that actually it, it wasn't that easy from the start with them um, in terms of trying to kind of suddenly fit together in a foursome in the way that we all wanted them to be. We wanted them to be the Fab Four. And obviously, as we know, families aren't, aren't like that at all. You know, families are, are complex and things aren't always that easy. I wonder if you think, any of you, that uh, um, William's concerns were also effectively concerns for Meghan. You know, did she really know what it meant to join the royal family? Was she naive? In, well, in her well, aspirations. I, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, um, and then the question I raise in the book um, and was in the paper yesterday, did the palace really do enough to cope with this American superstar coming in? I would have thought now in retrospect, it's clear this woman is so strongly dedicated to the cause of women's rights, to social change. Now, those are very... We all agree with them, but when it comes to the non-political British royal family, how do you fit that in? Mm. Um, and as I say, with hindsight, one says, well, surely she should have been brought into Buckingham Palace and, yes, treated like a star and say, now, what are the issues you'd really like to work on? Um, and the X, you know, X, Y, Z, and give her a special portfolio almost so that apart from anything, when the disenchantment came, she had actually committed to something. But what did they do? They sent her to Ascot. They sent her to 
watch the Queen opening the Mersey Bridge. And is this because she was, in effect, because she was treated the same as Harry, is, or that's the spare? We don't I need to worry about that. that. That's what I would well, say. Well, possibly. I mean, yeah. I think they did uh, ask them what they wanted to do. I mean, and the fact that uh, they gave, the Queen gave Harry and Meghan this role with the Commonwealth, which is so important to the Queen, mm. has dominated her, much of her life. Um, and Harry wanted to spend time abroad and this was felt as a perfect avenue for them to explore. Um, so I, I don't think that was the immediate issue. I think to start with, that, that would look like it was all going to go extremely well. Uh, I think the problem was that, that, that Meghan had discovered that she hadn't mar married the number one son. And maybe Harry had been, in terms of, as a public pinup, the number one. But in fact, there's a pecking order inside the royal family, and Harry was well down it. And I think she found that the hardest thing to come to terms mm. with. But I, I would just disagree with you there, Richard. The, the, the Commonwealth idea, the brilliant idea of perhaps stationing them in the Commonwealth for a bit in Africa or somewhere, it turned out to be Canada, just as the Queen had lived in Malta, that didn't come at the beginning. That came from the Queen herself after things started to go wrong. Well, you make that interesting comparison in your book, don't you, that she understood Harry's needs and wanted to compare them to Absolutely. her carefree days and in Malta. that is when, after about a year, 18 months, they actually say to Meghan, well, how about taking over the Queen's um, uh, sponsorship of the National Theatre because you're an actress? Well, why didn't they say that at the beginning? That's something, you know, you bring an actress into the family, the Queen's wants to give up the National Theatre, has never enjoyed it much anyway, she's not that sort of person. They waited 18 months, two years before realising, ah, there's something for Meghan to do. Mm. Do you think that the Queen was sympathetic to Harry and Meghan's desires to take a step back? I'm going to pass this over to the others, but I would say yes, Rebecca? definitely. Well, I have to say, I, I've been kind of listening to this and, and kind of flipping different ways on it about what things I agree with and not agree with. I mean, just to say, I, I know from the palace's point of view, they felt they did bend over backwards to help Harry and Meghan um, in any way they can. They were given, you know, a large team of staff and there were still vacancies to, to fill in that staff. They were allowed to handpick everybody they wanted to work with them. Uh, they were given their own social media people. And I think they did think quite carefully about uh, what patronages to give them. I mean, the, the, the National Theatre, for example, was one of the first patronages Meghan took on after their wedding. So I think they did try to think about it, but in their own way. And of course, we must accept that the palace can be a bit of an unwieldy institution. It doesn't move with the times maybe as quickly as, as Harry and Meghan would like. And, and maybe that's where never the twain shall meet. Yes, you're right. And then Meghan um, brings in her own American advisers, Sunshine Sachs. I can see the courtiers. Well, they must have gone berserk, you know. Um, she says, well, I'm not going to listen to you, I think even, thank you. even the name would have filled them with horror, yes. wouldn't it? So, um, <laughs> um, no, I accept what you say, Rebecca. It's a very complex picture. I do worry, though, that the Buckingham Palace attitude to this is judgmental, punitive toward, well, partisan. I mean, understandably, they're on William's side, I think. And, and I think, perhaps this is something for later in the programme to discuss, they should be doing more not to emphasise, as they have recently in the papers, this idea that somehow 
a deal has been broken. They should be trying to bring them together because that's what we want. But there's a sense, I think, um, within the public and, and some quarters of the palace that, you know, the, the bulk of the Megxit blame is to be laid at Meghan's feet. When, you know, is that, is that fair? Well, it, it may not be fair, but it's certainly how the blame has been apportioned. Mm. And because they, of course, have a, an institutional memory of, of Prince Harry and, uh, uh, as the charming little boy running alongside his brother. So it's understandable that the Harry they remember is not the mm. Harry that is the manifestly the one we see popping up on television and social media from California. And so it's inevitable that people will think, well, that's the influence of his strong-willed, strong-minded wife. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree. And the, and the, um, but of course, Harry himself has gone on record more than once as saying he doesn't like the word Mexit. He wants to insist it was his choice. Um, and of course, ultimately it was. But obviously, the chemistry of how this woman changed his attitude um, is central to our story. Mm. I mean, one of the stories, uh, um, well, it's in the book, but it's not in the, in the male extracts. I think a charming story, though, of how um, Harry was interviewing Jane Goodall, the great anthropologist, um, the sort of female David Attenborough, for if Vogue one may magazine, say so. Was it? Yes, yeah. for Vogue magazine. Well, now, here for a start, bottom of the class dunce Harry is interviewing um, this distinguished lady and he wants to bring her to meet little baby Archie just as we saw the other day um, William wanting um, his children to meet the great Sir David Attenborough and she comes into Frogmore Cottage and um, Megan offers the baby to Jane Goodall and she nurses the baby and she senses two things. Firstly she senses the baby's not happy. She says she'd rather be with her mother wouldn't she? Um, but before she gives her back, she takes the baby's hand and does a little royal wave and says, as an anthropologist, this is the destiny for this child. And Harry, like a shot, comes in and says, no, he's not going to be brought up like that. Mm -hmm. So here we have this issue. Does Harry any longer really want to be royal? Mm, it's fascinating. I think that in a lot of ways, Richard, the book goes some way to writing some of the wrongs against Meghan. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it's certainly a counter... It's certainly a counter well, yeah, I felt there was more of the other side than I yes. felt, yeah. Yes. I, th I yeah. do feel it's a, a counterbalance to uh, Meghan's book, if that's how we should characterise Finding Freedom, which came out a couple of months ago. Um, I, I mean, yes. I mean, it's it's certainly a, a far more balanced picture I've I've read in this in this. Well, that's what I aimed at. Thank you, Richard. But <laughs> it'll be for readers to judge how balanced I am. And and of course, people don't want to be balanced. Um, it's such an invitation this situation for people to dive in and take one side or the yeah. other. And that's frankly not good for the monarchy and it's not good for the country. I'm going to bring Rebecca in now. Um, Rebecca, you wrote a letter to Harry in the Daily Mail asking him not to throw it all away. Um, so did it, did it come as a shock to you when he did? No, no, it didn't actually. And as I said in that article, and I, I've never written anything about like that before and I hope I never will again. I don't like to personalise the journalism that I do. But 
I, I just felt people should know that this is something he'd thought about for a long time. He said to me and he said to others, I wish I could just jack it in and go and work as a ranger in Africa. I remember joking at the time and saying, well, so do we all, you know, but that's not real life. But it's something that had weighed heavily on him for a long, long time. And I think it's very easy for people to blame Megan as the person that's coming outside of the family in for everything. But actually, I think she is just the catalyst that gave Harry the um, reason, the excuse, whatever you want to call it, to do what he'd always wanted to do. Now, one of the other most striking claims in your book, Robert, is, is this claim about the so-called Sandringham Summit, when William purposely arrived late because he was so angry he couldn't sit through the lunch before the actual negotiations started. What can you tell us about that? Well, this is the, well, it's a, not just a story, it was reported at the time that um, before the, after all the rows which involved the revelation, the premature revelation, in the view of the family, by the Sussexes, of their website and Sussex Royal and all sorts of things they hadn't discussed properly with, with anybody. Um, now, the Sussexes' defence is that nobody wanted to discuss it, that, but that's in a way water under the bridge. It all explodes um, at Sandringham, where the royal family are for Christmas, where Harry and Meghan said they hadn't wanted to go, but they turn up after Christmas um, and there is this enormous row, and the Queen very sensibly says, right, we'll have a meeting about this next Monday, I think it was, three o'clock, um, but let's have a family lunch first. And we know for a fact that William said, I'm not coming to the lunch. Now, why did he say that? According to friends, but this is where we enter speculation, he said, you know, he just wanted to go to the negotiation negotiating meeting in the afternoon with his staff like Simon Case who is now playing the same role with Boris Johnson as cabinet secretary he wanted to sit around a table and negotiate and according to friends it's because he felt so emotional about it so that's one aspect of the, the you know the Sandringham summit that um, yes it was provoked definitely the whole showdown was provoked by Harry's anger that a newspaper revealed their Canadian plans. Mm. And he felt they could only have got this from the office of the Queen, Charles or William. He didn't know which. He was furious, he exploded. But then, I think the record shows that William also responded with anger and that that, um, uh, that obviously did not help the situation, to say the least. I mean, this, uh, the way you're describing it suggests to me that they can't even anymore be in stand to be in the same room together. Is it, is it that irreconcilable, do you think? I don't know if it's that irre irreconcilable, but I think there was a moment earlier this year where they clearly couldn't, and William did not want to be in his brother's company. And I think Robert's touched on the reason why. I mean, they both have rather explosive uh, temperaments something they've both inherited from the Prince of Wales. And um, I think William couldn't be uh, sure that he would be able to control ah. himself. Mm. Yes, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. Yes, yes I mean, the, so in, in other words, the charitable explanation of why William didn't go to the family lunch was that he didn't want to lose his temper or no. he, he didn't yeah. want to create a situation. That's quite plausible. Yeah. Well. Let's move on to today, where Harry is living with his family in a very large, expensive house in Hollywood. And he's 
long hinted, as you were just saying just now, Rebecca, that he wants to get away from it all. But yet he's in L.A., which is not quite away from it all. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it, 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 I think, as Rebecca sort of suggested, well, he talked about being wanting to be a game ranger in um, Africa, and he's actually decided that living in Montecito um, um, maybe suits him better. I mean, uh, this book we're discussing, Finding Freedom, um, jolly good title, because that is clearly what he feels he's got in America. Um, and but to me, Finding Freedom suggests being a park ranger in a remote bush in Africa, mm -hmm. not signing Netflix deals in for, you know, contractually obliging you to make content in Hollywood. What? Mm -hmm. Well, the ranger uh, issue, of course, came up, uh, as Rebecca says, um, some years ago, long yeah. before he met Megan. I mean, she has obviously changed his outlook on the world. But I mean, I think being away from the United Kingdom is a huge part of what he wanted. He, he really did want to get away. It wasn't, it wasn't just the issues with his brother and his family, mm -hmm. but there's a wider, in the wider context, his attitude towards the media and the way he felt he's been reported over the years. Then we should just add that COVID has made the situation much worse than it may actually be, because if it hadn't been for coronavirus, I think they were scheduled to come back for um, even as, I think they were scheduled to come back, Rebecca, wasn't it, for the Trooping of the Colour last year? And they might have come for family Christmas. So this terrible situation from which we're all suffering has actually made um, the separation worse than it might have been. But Rebecca, yeah. oh, c carry on. No, it was absolutely. I mean, I know for a fact Harry planned to come back around once a month after leaving um, the UK to uh, see his family, to meet charitable military commitments. And obviously COVID has put pay to that. I don't think Meghan was planning to come back as often, but she would have definitely been back with Archie for the big kind of key set pieces we see. And, and, and you know, I, I do wonder whether COVID unfortunately has kind of exacerbated that schism between them and the UK and the family, sadly. But uh, I don't know. So it's someone like me looking at it, uh, you know, the, the Netflix deal, the living in Hollywood, the, the, the media appearances that they have done, it suggests to me that Harry actually quite likes his celebrity status. Yes, and I, I'd say something else about the Netflix deal. Um, there is this question over the Netflix deal. Does it involve some secret documentary in which they're going to reveal all? And if it does, then what I'm about to say is not valid. But... If it doesn't, if it's what it pretends to, claims to be, that they're going to, they're getting paid a lot of money to make lots of rather worthy and boring documentaries about social issues, um, then I actually think that's quite dignified and quite clever. Um, and I actually think it's more dignified than running a shop in Buckingham Palace sh selling shower caps. Um, or Buckingham Palace gin as drunk by the Queen, or, or Prince Charles doing a deal with Waitrose for his Dutchie originals. I mean, th there's been such a lot of self-righteousness on the part of the British end, saying, how dare they be so commercial. Um, well, the whole royal family's got to make a living. Peter Phillips has got to sell his British milk in China. So the idea that they're abroad trying to be independent, they've actually... So God, I've suddenly become their advocate. Well, yeah, they, they've, sold, they've sold, they paid back the taxpayer everything. There's one promise they kept. They said, we want to pay off Frogmore Cottage. 
we want to be financially independent, and they are. Now, what's the price of that? Well, they've entered into a deal with the most rapacious industry on the planet. Well, yes. it, it, do we think Harry's happy? Mm. <laughs> Rebecca may be in a far better position than me to answer that. <laughs> I do think he's happy to a certain extent. I mean, you could... You only had to see how he was, even when he came back from the Commonwealth Service. You know, he was utterly miserable, miserable with the situation. And I don't think anybody would, um, you know, exclude him from being able to do that. I mean, I always really loved working with Harry. He was mercurial. He could be difficult. You know, he wore his heart on his sleeve if he was unhappy about something, you knew it. But equally, he could be incredibly happy, incredibly funny and had a, a wonderful common touch and I know that's something that the the palace felt it's really sad he's not here at the moment because it's something that could be deployed to great effect during this difficult period that we're going through um but equally he's made his bed and I think he, he's he's got to make the best of it mm. well let's look to the future now and Robert it isn't inconceivable that his father could be on the throne in a few years what what to you does a King Charles III era look like well, as I said earlier, um, we have ambivalent feelings about it. You know, I mean, there on the throne, we will see the couple um, who brought such unhappiness to Diana, um, who broke up, um, you know, the monarchy at the end of the 20th century. So I think people do feel ambivalent about it. I have the greatest respect for Prince, Prince Charles. You know, what a rotten destiny he's had to be in the waiting room all these years. And he really has made the best of it. There's an example of someone who has opinions, has campaigned, and has remained royal. So it shows it's not impossible. He's done it with dignity. Although he has had a lot of criticism over well, the years in that. I would defend him. I, yeah. I would say um, um, uh, uh, he... Um, no, I... I think he, he has tried to square this difficult circle and actually done it quite well. Mm. Um, and, uh, um, but I think I can understand why people look forward to his reign with, with ambivalence um, uh, and um, that why we focus so much on Kate and William and those enchanting children as the real future. Do you think that even some people in the palace, Richard, see him as a bit of a placeholder king? I don't think so. Not within the palace. I mean, I, I think uh, they take their views about the constitutional monarchy and, and the lines of succession extremely seriously. Um, the Prince of Wales will be the next king for however long that may be. I mean, the fact is the genes in the House of Windsor are pretty good mm. and robust. Um, Queen Elizabeth, there's no reason why she shouldn't uh, live as long as her mother, possibly even longer. Um, so we are going to go through a period where we have uh, an elderly, one elderly monarch replaced by another elderly monarch. Um, William is, it's unlikely that he's going to be a young King William. Um, he's going to be middle-aged. Mm. Um, and it's something we're just going to have to get used to because that's how the system is. Now, but what hope do you think, Robert, there is for whether it's under Charles's reign or William's even further in the future of, of Harry returning to the fold in some way? Oh, well, I think that has got to happen sooner. Mm. I mean, next year, 1st of July, we know just down the road here from Kensington. Are we allowed to say we're in Kensington now? Absolutely. And just down the we're road is Kensington right Palace. In the hot seat. And on the 1st of July, we will certainly, God willing, see William and Harry, and almost certainly their wives, gathered at the statue of Diana 
to honour the memory of her 60th birthday. Um, and a lot of the royal family will be there. And the question will be, how genuine, what sort of relationship are we seeing there? You know, as I said earlier, is, is it an act? And God willing, we've got Prince Philip's 100th birthday um, the, a few weeks before that. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it's... Um, uh, no, I think this, this reconciliation has got to come soon. I mean, the Queen, it was the Queen who had the idea of having a year's trial. Apparently, Harry was so furious um, at the time of the Sandringham Summit, he didn't want this probation period. But the Queen wisely insisted on it. And so at the end of March, we will hear from the Queen, Prince Charles and Prince William on how they think it's all worked and what their plans are. There's a commitment to that. And we, I think we all hope that it, we're going to see some coming together then because if we don't um, it's sad for the monarchy mm. because half of this charismatic pair will have been lost it'll be very sad for um, Meghan and Harry because they will then become ex-royals at the moment they're in an interesting um, although challenging controversial situation but if there's def if so if the deal next spring doesn't bring them together is going to certainly, what else can it do, split them apart. Mm. And the Duke of Windsor discovered, you know, being an ex-royal is not much fun. You've got one set of memoirs that will cause a bit of interest, and then you are finished. You are yesterday, certainly so far as the people of Britain are concerned. And yeah. I think it would be terribly sad Re if Rebecca, that's the destiny. Sorry, Robert. Yeah, Re sorry, no. Rebecca, what, what's your view? Do you, if, if things really are as bad as we're now being sort of like we, we all kind of accept, do you think that there's a situation where William won't even want Harry back in the fold? I don't think that's the case, but I also think there's a, a qualifying aspect to this. It's how Harry plays this. I mean, he's walking a very very delicate tightrope. He, he promised the Queen in January, and I know this for a fact, I will do nothing that will bring the monarchy into disrepute. There's nothing I will do that will embarrass you. There will be no dodgy deals. And and it's up to him to prove that now. If he's able to do that, as, as Robert rightly says, bringing out kind of interesting, worthy, you know, imaginative, challenging programming, then he, he's probably going to be able to do that. Um, I don't think he will ever come back into the fold because I don't think he wants to. You know, he, he spread his wings now. He's not, not going to want to have those clipped again. But I think, and I hope, I agree with Robert, there might be a way of, 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 of making something work, you know, that keeps both parties happy in the future. I have resisted asking this for so long now. But uh, before we go on to viewers' questions, I'm just curious, Robert, what, what you think Diana would have made of all of this? given that, you know, the next time we think they might be together is the, the unveiling of her statue. Well, here's another revelation from the book, which isn't in the serial. But I, just on the last page of the book, I asked this very question. I imagine, what would Diana have said? People, you know, there's been journalists recently saying people like us shouldn't imagine things. But I have imagined what, um, what would Diana say if she could come back? And I think... I'm sure she would say it's time to end the social distancing. It's time to get back together, boys. And I, I think, Richard, you've got a feeling that if Diana was still alive, this wouldn't have happened. Right. No, no, there would have been no rift. Really? Absolutely certain, yeah. Why, why are you so certain? Well, because she was the glue, quite frankly, between them. I and mean, we were dealing into a real 
fantasy area, which I don't really like talking about. But no, I'm absolutely certain that if Diana were here, um, there would have been no rift between Harry and William. Wow. I would agree with that, too. Imagine certainly. there's a parallel universe somewhere. But we'll, we'll never know. Um, we're going to take some readers' questions now. We've had a couple of questions about William and his role and how active is he in setting the direction and official response to his brother's actions. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> it's got to be Rebecca. Rebecca, yeah. definitely. Did you hear that, Rebecca? I did, yes. Yeah. Um, I, he was very involved in all the events leading up to the Sandringham Summit, and I know that's something he's he's happy about you know he he's now wanting to be more of a decision maker in the royal family so i fully expect he would be very much part of that decision making process uh, as as we go on to next march and the end of you know that probation period definitely and this from deborah from yorkshire who asks what do the wider family think of the split in your view are they all going with the palace or are there some who are team harry and meghan over to Rebecca again. <laughs> we, we give you the difficult ones, yeah. Rebecca. Yeah. As I say, what did I say about the difficult questions? I mean, look, Harry's still got a lot of kind of friends as well as family within the royal family. He's still very, very close to Princess Eugenie. Um, you know, she's very supportive of him. And, and I've heard kind of whispers on the grapevine that Princess Anne has been pretty supportive of him as well as someone who is very much a senior member of the royal family, but has always kind of ploughed her own furrow as well. So I, I, it, it just seems really sad to kind of set it up as a them against us. It's a really sad, complex situation, and hopefully they can find a way through this. I, I would just add that I am sure, and this is not quite conjecture, I think informed conjecture, I'm sure the rest of the family can see both sides of the story. Yes, but broadly, the rest of the family support the institution of monarchy, yes, and true. they do feel, uh, for example, Harry's and Meghan's unfortunate intervention into the, the US presidential election as, as an error. And well, uh, that kind of thing will uh, inform we got what happens. Family, eh? about this. Um, <laughs> I mean, recently, the very distinguished constitutional historian, who knows much more about it than certainly me, um, he analysed what... Harry and Meghan actually said about the US election. And they said two things. Um, you exercise your duty to vote and go for decency. And Professor Bognor said those words in themselves are neutral. And I would add to that, but they yeah. actually showed Harry and Meghan trying to stick by the deal. But now, Robert, President, Robert, Robert yes. it's all about perception and interpretation. Yes. Well, the I Queen's just thought intervention in, in, the, in the Scottish referendum yes. debate was think very carefully. How do yeah. we interpret it? Don't break up the United Kingdom. Yeah. I think even, no even Donald Trump, you know, took that as a swipe at him. But yes. it's just, I just, we've got time for one more question. And Jack Kirk wants to know, Robert, out of everything that you've discussed and, and talked about in the, you know, the, the drip drip effect of this sort of like Barney and this rift. What do you think, if anything, was the, the biggest cause of the situation we're in now with the rift between these brothers? There were all sorts of potentials for rift um, and disagreement uh, inside this wonderful partnership that the boys had. And the arrival of Meghan and Harry's love for Meghan crystallised all sorts of issues that were there already. So that's the turning point. Um, as the book shows, as every account shows, it, it was on this issue that the brothers first fell out. Mm. So 
that I think has to be nominated as the turning point. Well, and I'd hate to oversimplify things for you because this book is absolutely rich with detail and fascinating insight. And as it's been extremely fascinating to talk to you today, Robert, about this, and thank you so much to you, Richard and Rebecca, for being here. We're all very excited to get our teeth into your book, Battle of Brothers, out 15th of October, published by William Collins. And thanks also to Richard and Rebecca for Skyping in. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And of course, you can come back next week and join me, Joe Elvin, for more Palace Confidential. Mm-hmm.